0: Welcome to another episode of On The Couch with myself, Henry Jennings from Marcus Today. It seems a bit of a time since I last did one of these, but I'm really happy today to have James Hawkins from L1 Capital on the couch. It's fantastic to get him here. He's a busy man, very busy man and a great uh, investor and great fund manager. So I'm really happy that we finally managed to tee this up. James, uh, for those of you who don't know, runs the L1 Catalyst Fund and he's been He's been around a long time. He's been an ex macquarie guy as well. He was there for a decade and he spent the last 20 years advising boards and management and prior to joining L1 Capital, which was only recently, I think in 2021, uh, James spent nearly 10 years at Flagstaff Partners where he was the MD and a bit of an M&A specialist. So, of course, we've got a lot of M&A going on at the moment. So I'm looking forward to talking to him about that as well. So welcome, James. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Henry. It's a pleasure to be on the show this morning. It's good to have you here. Now, just before we kick off, as usual, just the general advice disclaimer. This is general advice only, so please do your own research, contact your own financial advisor, etc., before acting on any of the insights or ideas on this podcast. So it is general advice. So welcome again, James. First up, let, let's let's get this one out of the way. Well, what is the L1 Catalyst Fund? What does it do and how does it operate? The
1: Catalyst Fund is a best ideas fund with an activist overlay. It's long only, it doesn't short, it has no leverage, and it has a hard cap of 10 stocks. And it's really been brought into um, being in order to leverage off the you know, best ideas that the L1 Capital long and short funds team generates. And we, being the catalyst team, this job is really to enact and to accelerate the catalyst to bring forward equity returns for investors.
0: Cool. Oh, and what attracted you to run the funds? Because you were obviously uh, one of the founders of uh, Flagstaff Partners, and you came across only last year. What attracted you to do this with uh, L One Capital?
1: It was really the market opportunity. Um, we saw a real, uh, op- you know, a real opening and um, you know, a real market opportunity for a fund which was a best ideas fund, but also to have a bit of an activist overlay, which leveraged off my uh, 20 years in investment banking. And when we looked at the market as a whole, we saw less than $2 billion of dedicated activist strategies in the Australian marketplace. And that's in a $4.3 trillion market. So it's a very well accepted and uh, very strongly performing strategy offshore in fact it's been the best performing strategy offshore the last three years Um, and we just saw an an obvious market opportunity in australia and we thought that investors would uh, benefit from having the opportunity to invest in this fund which was exposed to the australian equity market
0: james when you talk about an activist fund what what does an activist do how how do you look at a stock as as an activist i guess uh, with these high conviction plays are these um you know uh, what I used to do at Macquarie was was a lot of uh, takeover arbitrage in those kind of situations. Is that what you're looking for?
1: We're looking for stocks that have three attributes, Henry. The first attribute is it needs to be good value. The second attribute is that it needs to be high quality. And the third attribute is that it needs to have catalysts. And those catalysts can come in many different forms. They can be financial catalysts. They might involve buying back stocks. They might be... Um, unlocking latent value through a sale and leaseback, they might be through um, you know d- divesting an underperforming and undervalued um, part of the business that the market's describing no value to, but still has some value to some potential buyers. So it's a whole a large range of possible. Um, initiatives that our fund can can undertake.
0: In the past, I know that you know, we, we see some activist funds coming to Australia. The one that springs to mind, I guess, for me is Elliot, uh, which were very active in BHP in terms of getting them to change, uh, well, a lot of BHP, they, they were very keen to get them to change the dualistic structure, for instance. Is that the sort of thing that you push companies to do? Do you get actually involved in, in trying to precipitate those catalysts? Or um, do you leave that for uh, for others to do?
1: No, that's an example of the types of initiatives which we will undertake. And I think uh, if you look at many of uh, Elliot's ideas in relation and suggestions in relation to BHP, they've ultimately, albeit a few years subsequently, been you know undertaken by the company. So, you know, that is an example of one of the initiatives which, you know, if we thought it made strategic and financial sense for a company and would result in, Um, and appreciating share price um, as a result, that is something that we would undertake.
0: It's funny, isn't it? There's, um, I know people in in previous jobs, in previous careers, I guess, um, you know, you give them an idea and they say, no, no, that's ridiculous. And then they go away and think about it for six months and then it becomes their idea. And they come back and say, I've had this fantastic idea. It's a bit like that with BHP, isn't it? They didn't want to be seen to be bullied by Elliot uh, to do it. But as you say, they, they implemented most of the things that they said, they just... Gave a little bit of um, a pause and a little bit of time to make the optics look better, I suspect. Yeah, well, much
1: of the dialogue that we have um, with companies is behind closed doors and, you know, the market will never hear about it. And we're very happy for companies to be, you know, the initiator in the in the public um, sphere for the ideas, because obviously if, if it's been... Led by the company, it happens in, in a quicker time frame than if um, the company is, is opposed to it. So,
0: I, I you know, this is a very tough market, man. This is a very volatile market. How, how have you guys been going? What, uh, what sort of um, performance have you been achieving?
1: We have, um, our performance as at the um, end of April was uh, close to 25% um, net of fees since the 1st of July in calendar 2021. Um, so we've been pleased with the performance since inception, but it's obviously early days and, um, you know, we're very focused on continuing to make, uh, you know, uh, alpha for, for our investors going forward.
0: Well, that's that's pretty impressive, James. Congratulations on that. Thank you. How big's the team? How, how many people
1: have you got in the team? So the Catalyst team has a team of three um, that are dedicated to enacting and accelerating the Catalyst, but we very much work hand in glove with the long, short, Um, Equities investment team, and they're a team of eight. So there's a team of 11 in total that, um, you know, generate ideas for the Catalyst Fund.
0: I've I've been a long-term fan of uh, L1 Capital and the Long Short Fund and and had Mark on this um, this show before, and it's um, it's been great. It's been a big winner for us. We identified it quite early, I guess, when uh, the custard hit the fans back in um, COVID times. And added it to our small cap portfolio it's still one of our biggest holdings there so um, it's done pretty well but when we look at um, you know you've only got 10 stocks in your portfolio i mean that's pretty concentrated does does this high conviction come with high risk as well is is this part and parcel of getting 25 percent since last or well, july 1st 2021 is this part and parcel of that um that performance
1: Oh, well, we don't, um, we're very cognizant of risk whenever, obviously, within a 10 stock portfolio. A 10 stock portfolio, by definition, will have um, some volatility. However, we think of it as a um, private equity like fund. And if you have a look at a private equity like fund, they would not have any more than, you know, 10 portfolio companies in their fund and there would be volatility within their valuations. They just aren't marked to market daily. Um, but we think, by definition, of being a, um, best ideas fund I think once you start getting um, north of 10 stocks it starts to become debatable as to whether a stock idea actually constitutes the definition of a of a best idea from my perspective
0: yeah that's a good point I must admit that that is a good point and you tend to I know from my own experience running um, the, the, the small cap portfolio but it's only a model portfolio which I've been running for the last four or five years it's easy to kind of get carried away and drift into stocks and before you know it you've got to a, a list as long as a, sh- a shopping list of Woolies online to uh, to contend with, and then it's a question of pruning them. So, is ten, a great discipline. Now, as far as discipline goes, how do you what do you look for when you're putting these um, these these ten stocks together? I guess they're not all in one go. But what what is your sort of investment process that you're looking for? You've you've run through good value, high quality, and catalyst. Um, is there anything else, or is there is there a process that you can share with uh, with our listeners about? The, um, the way you choose your stocks
1: we have those three key gates that stocks must get through in order to get into the fund we then have a look at the you know actual um, total portfolio and have regards to and we're not going to have you know five or six property sector um, exposed stocks they're exposed obviously to cap, cap rates and, and bond yields so we have a we have some consideration to diversification within the portfolio at the end of the day Henry we are looking for um, those stocks which we think are going to give our investors the best economic return over the um, you know next you know 12 to 18 months, having regard to you know the the risks associated with investment, and you know at the end of the day we're looking for investment opportunities that have asymmetric um, you know upside relative to downside potential, and we also have a look at those stocks which we think can we can have the most Meaningful impact in order to enact and accelerate the catalyst because even if there may be a catalyst there, but you know, if the company be, may be of a, a size and um, scale, or the register may be of a particular composition such that we can't enact and accelerate the catalyst and can't influence through the um, L1 capital uh, funds investments, that obviously means. Um, it, it goes down the priority order in terms of uh, likely investment for the Catalyst
0: Fund. So are there any themes at the moment that are standing out for you as, as, as a great place to be? Anything that stands out really?
1: There's a couple of themes out there. I think one is um, the embedded property value within um, listed companies and probably case in point there is, is, is Ramsey Healthcare. Ramsey Healthcare, you know, as, as most of your listeners would be well aware, is um, a very high quality, um, you know, Australian listed um, hospital uh, provider, but it's also got Northern Hemisphere operations a, as well. You know, we thought prior to the KKR approach, close to two thirds of the market cap was um, backed or underpinned by the uh, value of the Australian hospital land bank and land, land book. So we think that um, you know is an example of where the public markets aren't, were not truly recognising the the underlying uh, property values of um, you know a listed entity, and and, and property book is so attractive because in Australia it's, it's assets are irreplaceable, and you know its property assets are ESG friendly, and you know those two attributes make um, the sort of cap rate that could be achieved through uh, a sale and leaseback transaction of the Australian um, property assets you know very attractive now there has been an issue with um, the Ramsey um, property assets in saying that there has been um, a very low tax cost base for those property assets now under under a takeover scenario of course the the tax cost base would be reset to the takeover price, and then if a sale and leaseback was subsequently done, there would not be any, the tax leakage, um, you know, that, you know, would otherwise be done if that um, tax base was not reset. So there's some advantages that a KKR led consortium would have, but that's that's one example. Um, another example or another theme that I'm seeing out there is just the a wave of private capital um, that still needs to um, be deployed, and I think you're going to see more public to privates um, particularly with the volatility out there. So, you know, as of today, there was the um, announcement from Brambles that they have received an approach from CVC. Obviously, Sydney Airport um, was taken private and we've just talked about Ramsey um, has had an approach from KKR. These deals are, um, you know, typically backed by long-dated patient capital and each of these deals are of a scale that, you know, we wouldn't have, wouldn't have um, deemed likely, you know, a few years ago. In the public markets Ramsey, for example is a 28 billion dollar enterprise value including the control premium that's a significant transaction
0: yeah i guess brambles is you know 20 billion as well this is another significant transaction and as you say through all this volatility private equity is is very cashed up still and looking for those homes for their um for their markets um for their money so um i did have one member ask a question about channel infrastructure um he wanted to know why you like this one yeah, sure. So,
1: channel infrastructure um, has um, a ten-year take-or-pay contract with three, um, you know, key um, oil oil uh, providers in New Zealand, being BP, ExxonMobil, and uh, Z Energy. Um, that's forecast to do a, you know, a dividend in calendar um, calendar twenty three once it gets on a on a normal run rate, of close to. Ten cents per share. The current share price is a dollar So the dividend yield is you know little little shy of ten percent. Um, it also has you know a large amount of, of land at its Marsden Point uh, facility that can be used for solar um, and other you know hydrogen and, and other new energy forms, as well as having a um, pipeline between Marsden Point and Auckland Airport, and that's a monopoly asset. And it is, um, you know, I think the reality is that airline uh, jet fuel is going to come back through through the channel um, infrastructure uh, facility much earlier than perhaps was anticipated a year or so ago. So, you know... I like the dividend yield. I like the fact that it's um, still you know good value, and it's a monopoly asset, and it's got
0: some growth options, um, you know, going forward. It's funny. I was listening on uh, CNBC the other day, and they were saying that uh, jet fuel in the U.S. is up 178 percent from a year ago. It's extraordinary. Uh, the rise in jet fuel not only on the demand, of course, coming back strongly after COVID, but also because the U.S. refineries sort of switched off producing jet fuel uh during covid and have now had to uh, to switch back to jet fuel which is taking some time and forcing uh prices higher so it's uh, it's a big big um issue i guess for these airlines going forward
1: you know it, it, it will be um you know they will need to pass it on to consumers and they'll need to um manage capacity when they fly to make sure that it planes are fuel and I think we'll see more um, cancellation of flights going forward whilst the oil price remains high.
0: Now, now James, we're going through a, a period, I guess, of uh, some dislocation going on. We nearly hit a bear market in the US uh, a couple of days ago in, in, uh, in trade and our markets come off substantially since Easter. What advice can you give to members out there about this volatility? You've been doing this a long time. You're a very successful investor. What advice can you give our members and and people listening to this podcast about investing uh, and especially, I guess, investing through volatile periods? I think the first thing
1: uh, is that investors should have a diversified portfolio and that means diversified across different markets. Um, So if you look at the equities market, the Australian market has significantly outperformed the U.S. equities market. It's got a very different composition. It's got 5% um, sort of IT growth stocks, whereas the U.S. market is 40%. So I think the first point is diversification across markets, across across asset classes, not just equities but bonds, property and so forth. Um, And then the other key point is have regard to uh, your own risk-return expectations and needs um, in terms of income whilst also having regard to the um, duration that you're willing to invest for. Because if you have a six to 12 month investment time horizon, you know, you need to have a very different perspective than if you have a you know five plus year investment time horizon. And, um, you know, in equity markets, there's frequently um you know pricing that you know is um volatile and you know the the longer dated um investment time arrives and the better it will be for you in terms of being able to you know sort of deal with the uh the volatility within the in the markets i,
0: I guess at the moment there's a lot of lot of volatility in the markets due to um due to the the federal reserve trying to get this soft landing underway to some extent is do you think the Fed's going to be successful in, in getting this soft landing or are we going to see continued volatility, much higher interest rates, um, the Fed falling flat on their face as opposed to uh, providing this soft landing for the US economy? I think it's going to be
1: pretty challenging for the Fed to ensure a soft landing because, um, you know, there's a lot of external, externalities that um, are outside their control, such as geopolitical. Um, issues in in uh, in Russia and Ukraine, and there's also significant um, supply chain issues. China is still have you know key cities in, in lockdown. So I think you know t- for the Fed to k- be coming off the risk free rate, you know being as close to the floor as it is, I think it's going to be pretty challenging for it to rein in inflation um, with all these other factors that are outside its control. Wreaking havoc in sort of the, the markets and economies, you know, globally. But we'll see.
0: Yeah, I guess you spent uh, a fair amount of time working in New York, and uh, you mu- you must have contacts over there still. H- how are they seeing things? Are they've got the similar sort of view to your own? Well, I think the
1: great thing about markets is there's always um, different different views. But I think the the consensus view is that it's it's you know, calendar 2022 is going to be a, a volatile calendar year for markets across most markets um, when the risk-free rate is rising and is forecast to rise as it is forecast to that that creates you know headwinds for most asset classes and you know if you look at this year on the market was expecting the Fed to raise you know the um, raised interest rate three times this calendar year on the first of January you know, and and recently has been up as expecting rises as many, as many as eleven times. So the market has moved very materially in less than half half a year. So I think um, the market, as it does, is probably overshot from my opinion where the Fed will ultimately get to. Um, but until we start to see inflation um, get under control in the U.S., you know, the markets will remain pretty nervous because they'll be worried about what the Fed's um, you know rate rising bias is going to be.
0: So in these kind of conditions, do you have elevated cash levels or you're always 100% invested or, or do you use some sort of hedge, uh, index hedge or anything like that in, in the uh, the Catalyst Fund? We
1: we are nearly always fully invested because we are an, an equity markets fund. We, we can um, hold, we do hold, you know, a small amount of cash to create um, or make the most of market opportunities when they present but we're typically you know fully invested and we we like we like volatility because it provides us opportunities to deploy at what is you know we think is still attractive prices and and we are we are very very bespoke with our investments because we are only a, a 10 stock portfolio
0: okay well i'm going to ask you the, the question i'm sure most people would like the answer to um is there any stocks out there at the moment i know that um you're not going to give away too much secret sauce because um you're in the business of the secret sauce are there are any stocks out there at the moment that you're looking at and go oh that one i kind of fancy that one there's a catalyst in that one maybe we should be looking at this um and any of those kind of on your horizon that you're, you're thinking about at the moment that you can uh, you can uh, sort of expand on for our listeners?
1: Yeah, there's one, one stock which, you know, some people, you know, are, are happy to uh, disagree with, but it is Qantas. And Qantas is an interesting stock because, you know, it, it operates, you know, against uh, its major competitor, which is now owned by private equity. And in my view, you know, Bain that owns Virgin will be rational in their pricing. Um, You know, there's the its main risk obviously is um oil and the price of oil. Um however Qantas has hedged out its pricing or ninety percent of its fuel needs for first half calendar uh twenty two and it's hedged fifty percent first quarter FY twenty three and thirty percent second quarter FY twenty three. I think there's a significant um you know desire from consumers to travel again and there's a habit once they go on their first holiday to think geez that's the first holiday i've been on in three years and that was fun i'm going to book another one and another one and i think as people think you know why aren't i traveling both domestically and then internationally even um to a lesser extent or but you know if i can get COVID here in australia why would i not get COVID in a, in a different different state Um, And we've been, you know, in some form of lockdowns, um, you know, for much of the last two and a half years. And there's a significant backlog of demand, I think, particularly from the leisure market. And we've seen that in the US, um, you know, leisure is close to 100% of pre-pandemic levels. And, um, you know, we think there's uh, a real backlog. And I think Qantas, you know, has historically traded at um, a discount to the ASX Industrials Index and even having regard to um, that continued discount going forward and these arguments to say that it should trade at a lesser discount with a more rational domestic and international competitive environment. Uh, you know, we still see a lot of upside from its current current share price.
0: Yeah, you're, you're talking to a man who's just booked um, a number of flights to the UK, having not seen my mum for three years uh, due to COVID. So we are heading back in September and I stupidly Said to my kids because my best friend in Edinburgh's daughter's getting married. Why don't we all go? <laughs> and, uh, and they said, "Well, that's great, Dad. That's fantastic, but we can't afford to go." I said, "Ah, don't worry. You know what? The flights are cheap at the moment. So why don't we um, we lend you? We do a buy now, pay later parent scheme, and uh, we can um, we can all go to uh, to Edinburgh in September for a wedding, which was fine when." airline flights for around 1500 bucks but they seem to have gone up quite a lot recently and it's interesting we've um, we've ended up booking as you say with with Qantas um, and the competition has dropped off dramatically because China is closed effectively all that cheap competition coming out of China with their Chinese airlines and Asia to an extent have all dropped off the planet so prices and, of course, the oil price has pushed up as well. So prices are pushed up big time. So I'm starting to regret my offer of four flights to London. Um, it's um, it's turned out to be somewhat more expensive than I anticipated. So um, we'll see how it goes. And, and then, of course, there's the issue of um, I've got no money when I get there. Well, okay, well, that's not my problem. That's your problem. But anyway, um, so um, Qantas, that's that's an interesting one, isn't it? I see Alan Joyce just bought a new, uh, new house as well in Mossman. So... He's obviously uh, feeling pretty bullish about the environment out there.
1: Yeah, look, I think you're you're not not alone, Henry, in wanting to visit friends and family overseas. Um, You know, I haven't seen my sister who lives in Alabama in the US for three years and haven't seen her, you know, four children. And so, um, and Qantas has very dynamic pricing. So, you know, as oil prices rise and as demand rises, they have very dynamic pricing that can be passed through to consumers. And I think, you know they're coming up against not just a much more rational domestic competitor but if you look at the US airlines they're unhedged to to oil and they also um are very leveraged post covid so they're only going to fly into australia if it makes economic sense yeah. um for them and there's less of them that are doing that so i think the competitive environment for qantas is looked the best that you know it has looked for some time and i think it's um it's been has uh, it really lived the adage of never waste a crisis through taking out nearly a billion dollars of costs over the last couple of years. I think the management teams are very capable there, so I think they've done a, done a done a good job of you know not wasting a crisis. So, as well as realizing some land values at Mascot and the like, so um, you know they're, I think they're a very different company than they were you know pre COVID.
0: Yeah. I, I tend to agree with that. Now, a couple of final questions as we as we wrap this up. Um, some of our listeners out there will be uh, relatively inexperienced young guys. Hopefully, that uh, listen to this podcast. What what advice have you got for anyone starting out on their investment journey? Because we have seen a flood of uh, new investors come to the market what advice apart from of course investing in the uh, the l1 catalyst fund of course but what advice generally would you give young guys out there just starting out young girls as well
1: the first thing i'd um encourage them to do is to be you know as big a reader as they can now that is a reader of, you know financial press so they start to get a, a basic understanding once they have that basic understanding i'd encourage them to um invest in a couple of stocks that they understand and they can get their heads around and, and, and start to f- start to establish um, you know criteria before they invest as to why they are investing in that particular stock their, their their hold period you know that they would like to have for that stock is that a stock that they think is going to be higher in three years five years etc um, and just I think that's the best way for them to take an interest in the markets to start to understand a particular stock and to start to understand markets because markets, of course, are um, very much influenced by, you know, psychology and sentiment, not just by, um, you know, fundamentals. But getting an understanding of all of those factors, uh, the earlier they start, you know, the better they'll ultimately be. And I'd also encourage them to, um, you know, speak to people who are involved in markets to pick their brains because they'll get, you know, wise and sensible learnings from all range or range of
0: people now james this is a little unfair because this is a question without notice but i think i'll ask it anyway um what's what's been your biggest investment mistake what have you learned from it did it did it teach you a valuable lesson that you've been able to use elsewhere Is is there something that stands out for you and you think oh i stuff that one up but i've learned a great lesson from it. is there anything that sticks out in your mind, I can see you on the on the on the video looking around. So obviously you, you probably haven't made any mistakes, but I know I, I, I have made plenty in my time. Is there anything that sticks out for you? And you think, yep, stuff that one up. But I've learned a really good lesson.
1: No, no, I've, I've made plenty of mistakes like, like, like everyone. I think um, the mistakes that frustrate me the most is when I've made a mistake and then I've made a subsequent mistake which with the benefit of hindsight I realize I've made that mistake before and I haven't learned from making the mistake the first time. So that's when I get most frustrated because no no one no one has a crystal ball and you know we all make um, judgments in you know with our investments in the market based upon our work, our analysis and our you know, assessment as to what that future um, prospect of the company looks like. But I think, um, you know, I think we all need to learn from our mistakes and when, if we make a mistake twice, that's probably when, which is the same mistake, that's probably the one that, you know, you don't want to make.
0: Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And thank you for um for, for my question with that. Notice. Finally, are there, any, are there any books or podcasts out there that you're listening to at the moment or, or reading that uh, you think, wow, this is fantastic and i need to share this with uh with a wider community that uh, they should be listening or reading these these things i don't have a lot of time for books
1: but there has been one book that i've read um recently that i thought was great and that's called um the happiest man on earth by oh, yu yeah. i think that's um a great book and gives um you know gives those who read the book some great perspective on life
0: yeah i think that's a, a great choice james it's been an absolute delight talking to you thank you so much for your time uh, it's really been uh, too great to catch up and congratulations on L1 Catalyst. It's been uh, a fantastic success so far and I'm sure it will continue into the future. So thanks once again for your time. Thank you, Henry, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.